in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. Well, I really appreciate you guys being here. Uh, I sometimes joke that people just need one reason not to come to church, and today has offered like four. Uh, so I'm glad that, that you guys are here. Um, I want to ask, I want to start this sermon by asking, what is the big deal about Advent? What is, you know, we hear about this Advent season. What really is the big deal about Advent? So we have talked before about how one of the major arcs through which we see the whole story of Scripture is creation, then fall, then redemption, and then restoration. So you can see the Bible through that whole arc. But there is another arc, there is another frame through which you can read the Bible, and you have not heard me talk about this one probably as much, and it's the presence of God. So think about this question. Can we be face-to-face with God? You can read the entire Bible through that act through that arc of how do we get face-to-face with God, that that might be one of the principal concerns of the people of God. How do we get face-to-face with God? So in the beginning, God was with us and walked among us, and we saw him face-to-face. But in sin, it caused us to hide from God and to hide our faces, right? When Adam and Eve sin, the first thing they do even before talking with God, God comes to the garden, and they're hiding their faces, right? They're in shame, it's the first time that they hide their face from God. And then the world changed. We were cast out. We lost that face-to-face presence of God. We lost the ability to be near him. And now, because of sin, we couldn't even look at God. He was so high above, above us that if we gazed upon him, we would die. So we've got a bunch of scripture today that we're going to go through. I know some people really dig that, and other people... You, you know, don't want to say they don't because it's scripture, but they'd maybe rather listen uh, to, to other, other thought. But let me uh, talk through some of scripture. So because of sin, we can't even look at God or we'll die. Um, after that, there's all of these attempts, and we'll go through some of them. There are all these attempts to get back into the presence of God. So Babel is the first one, right? That the, the nations come together and they say, we are going to reach God on our own. We're going to build this sort of in a crass way. We're going to build this stairway to heaven and get in front of God. And then, of course, we know how that turns out, that in the, in the attempt to be in the presence of God, people were, were in essence trying to become God himself or become like God. And he confused their plans and scattered them out. And then uh, after Moses, let's skip ahead a bit. After Moses gives the Ten Commandments, he comes down and it says here in Exodus, it says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, imagine being that, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you so that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So God is always coming to us in this thick flames or darkness or clouds something that we can't fully comprehend or see. But notice this in this passage. The people are afraid. They see all of this sort of explosion, fire, and smoke on the mountain. And they say, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. So then Moses, because the glory of God was so strong and so bright, uh, Moses' face would irradiate light after speaking with God on Sinai. And because of the people's fear of the glory of God, 
Moses had to be veiled just to speak with the Israelites. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly, but we get the sense that this irradiation, this illumination that would come off of Moses' face, was powerful enough to kill, but that it would fade over time. Because for the last 38 years of his life, he doesn't have to wear a veil. But after talking with God, he shines so brightly that he has to wear a veil just to communicate with the people of God. It's like, I think of like uh, secondhand cigarette smoke, right? Cigarettes are so dangerous, you don't even have to smoke them to die from them. You could just be in the presence of somebody who is, and you could still uh, get lung cancer from it. And it's the same thing, that the glory of God is so overpowering that you don't even have to be the one that sees him. You could just see somebody who's seen him, and you could still die from that glory. So there's this secondhand exposure to God that is holiness. He's just so pure. Think of, it's not that he's bad, but think of like, if you get too close to the sun, right? Like the sun is obviously a good force, a powerful force. If you get too close to it, you die. And so that's what the glory of God is like this, that, it, that there's a, a, such a, a, str- a strength there that we die just even beholding it, even though it's good. And so where does that leave the people of God? They had the fall. Now they've been rescued by God and have Moses, but they're still not back to where they were. They're not in the presence of God and they are not face to face. Then you have the Ark of the Covenant where they stored the Ten Commandments. Uh, and for those of you who have seen the Indiana Jones movie, I'm sure this has burned itself into your brain maybe more strongly than, than other biblical images. But the Ark of the Covenant was so holy that anybody who touched it died. And they had to put special poles through it just so they could move the thing. Uh, and there's a few stories in the Old Testament of somebody slipping or accidentally like, you know, slipping and trying to catch it. And then they just keel over, dead. Because the presence of God is so dynamic, so bright, so hot, so powerful that human beings keel over dead just touching anything that's been near his presence. Uh, Just as a funny side note, I forget which Indiana Jones film that is. Do you guys remember the name, the Ark of the Covenant one? Raiders of the Lost Ark. That that sounds right because of the Ark, yeah. Uh, So so I think it was either that. Is that the third one or the first one? The first one. Okay, I think it was that one. Uh, It's been pointed out that Indiana Jones, you could take him out of the movie and the end result of the movie would be exactly the same. And so, like, he, he actually serves no purpose. He's along for this adventure, but essentially the outcome would have been exactly the same if he had never been involved because of, you know, the power of the art. So that's just a funny, uh, a funny thing there. Uh, one of the great criticisms of the movie, as great as it is. So, okay, back to, back to the sermon. All right, um, Let's see here. Then we have the temple. So they build, you know, finally God is like, you know, establish a house for me, establish a temple. So they build the temple, and then there's like the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies in the innermost part of the temple that only the high priest can go into, and only once a year. And it's behind this massive curtain, and that's the place where the priest would go once a year to offer sacrifice for the people. And so it was understood that God's presence, in a way, was in there, but only one priest, only once a year, could go in to offer sacrifice for the people. But then the temple was destroyed and all the people were brought into slavery, right? And then by God's grace, they were released from Babylon and they rebuilt the temple. And they had the Holy of Holies again. Finally, we're getting back to this presence. Can we just get the presence of God? Can we be face-to-face? At least one of our priests, at least once a year, can we be face-to-face with God? (laughs) Of course, then it's destroyed again. But all throughout the Old Testament, there is this understanding that this is not how it's going to be, this aching for the presence of God, that one person, once a year, at the very top of the the food chain, so to speak, would be able to be in the presence of God. Instead, someday, this change is coming. God says uh, that I will dwell with you, not in temples made with human hands, but in your hearts. 
Uh, Isaiah 7, 14, we'll just go through a few verses. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. I may have said this before here, but you've probably forgotten by now. Imanu is the preposition for with us. And El, for like Elohim or El Shaddai, means God. So Emmanuel means God with us or the with us God. And so they're saying, you know, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he's going to be called God with us, right? When they're hearing it in Aramaic and Hebrew, they're not hearing Emmanuel. They're hearing their words, God with us, uh, as if you were to name somebody God with us. So he's saying the days are coming when I will be with you. I will have a son conceived of a virgin, and he will be God with you. It's not this one priest once a year behind a curtain. It's God with you face to face. I'll read a few more uh, passages of scripture. This is from Jeremiah 33. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, or Yahweh, our righteous Savior. So it's Yahweh to the Kenu. And, and so this is uh, Yahweh, our Savior. And Jesus' name is Yeshua, right? Yeshua in, in Aramaic. And the Ye comes from Yah, and the Shua means to save. He, she, it saves. So here the Bible is saying, you know, I will come to be with you, and my name will be Yahweh, our righteous Savior. And Jesus comes, and his name is Yahweh saves. His name is Yahweh saves. It's so hard for us as we get used to hearing Jesus, 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 we forget that in their language, Yeshua sounds like Yah saves. That's what his name sounds like to them. Yah for Yahweh saves. Uh, Another scripture here. Um, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will not be, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. So the presence of God was lost, and there's this absolute prohibition on being face-to-face with God after the garden. The presence of God is just so dangerous and so glorious that it kills But it wasn't always going to be like that. This branch of David, this Messiah. By the way, that word branch is Nazard. I've preached on this before. Nazard is where you get the Nazardaios. The the, the Jesus will be called, the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. That's like the most tricky prophecy fulfillment in the New Testament. Matthew says, you know, and that's how, you know, they said that he would be a Nazarene. And if you go through the entire Old Testament, it says nowhere that the Messiah was going to be a Nazarene. But it does say he was going to be the branch of David, which is a Nazard, which is the same root as Nazareth. And that's where that comes from, that Matthew is playing with that, that he's going to be this Nazard. And here Jesus is uh, both born born in Bethlehem, but he was from Nazareth. Okay, so... Hebrew geeky stuff aside. Uh, All right, so one day this branch of David, this Messiah is coming, 
and he would be this truer presence. Uh, he would be in person. He would be God with us, the Emmanuel, but also he would be in our hearts where God speaks directly to us. It's not limited to the temple. It's not limited to this space behind the curtain, this holy of holies. No, Jesus tore the curtain in two. If you read the crucifixion account, it says at the hour that Jesus died on the, on the cross, the curtain that guarded the holy of holies ripped in two. It just, of its own accord, it just ripped in two, shorn in two. And the idea is that instead of one priest going into the holy of holies once a year, there is no separation. There is no curtain. There is no veil anymore over the presence of God, because Jesus has ripped the veil in half. Jesus has allowed us to come into the presence of God face to face. In fact, Jesus is the presence of God face to face. We don't need a temple anymore. In fact, the Romans destroyed that temple a few decades later, and it's never been rebuilt, right? You don't need the temple to get God's presence. That temple was destroyed, and it was never rebuilt. But Jesus knew it was going to be destroyed. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in what? Three days. He knew it. He knew he's, he's Jesus. He's all-powerful. He knows that that temple was going to be destroyed. He said, destroy it, and I will rebuild it in three days. Of course, he was talking, though, about the temple of his body, that the new temple, the reason it's never been built, the reason God has not allowed it, even though there are some reactionaries that want to rebuild it, but the reason God has never allowed it is that the temple no longer serves its purpose, right? The temple is the church. It is the body of Christ, which is us here and those online, <laughs> the body of Christ is the temple. Jesus is talking uh, in uh, John 4, I think it is, to the Samaritan woman. And they're, you know, they're having this little argument. He's like, hey, you know, I know you've had you know, so many uh, husbands, and now you're living with one who's not him. And she sort of deflects it, and they move into this theological argument. Uh, and Jesus tells her, he says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans <clears throat> worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So he's talking about, like, there is a, a time coming when the so ancient religion had this idea that the temple almost functioned like a cell phone tower. The closest you got, the closer you got to it, the better service you had, right? You had this, you know, you had this sort of download upload that needed to happen, and as close as you could get to the cell phone tower, the better spot you were in. And he's saying, no, the time is coming when we will worship the Spirit and Father and in, in, in truth. You could be in Timbuktu, you could be in Jerusalem, you could be in St. Paul, Minnesota, and you will have the identical access to God. Your bandwidth, so to speak, will be identical no matter where you are in the universe, even on the moon. Uh, <laughs> maybe you've heard me say this. You guys know the first astronauts brought wine and bread to the moon and had communion on the moon. And God was just as present with there, wherever two or three are gathered, right? Two of them were believers, one was not, and the two were gathered and they had communion on the moon. And Jesus was just as present there. It doesn't work like a cell phone tower. So now it's not about the Holy of Holies. It's not about one priest guy. Uh, instead, they have reversed the curse of Babel. So think about what Babel was. It was all the people coming together and trying to reach God, and instead God confuses and separates them and scatters them into different nations, different languages. But now what we have in Jesus is the reverse of that. Instead of division and scattering, 
All nations are now being drawn together at the foot of the cross, right? Gentiles and Jews, people from different uh, nations all over the world are hearing, just like at, at Pentecost, they're hearing the gospel of Jesus in their own language. So the Pentecost is now a reversal of Babel. We don't worship in the temple. We worship in his body, which is the church. And all nations and languages are coming back together. All tribes and tongues are coming back together. And that's the representation of what it will be in heaven. And this is what the big deal of Advent is, that after all this time, after all of this seeking, can we finally have the presence of God? That presence of God face-to-face is back, and it's here in Jesus Christ. Uh, Philippians 2, Paul says that he emptied himself. It's very hard to talk about Jesus' humanity without accidentally saying something heretical, but I'll just quote scripture. Somehow, Jesus was with God in the beginning, but he then he didn't become, I don't want to say he became lesser because he's still fully God, but somehow he emptied himself, somehow, of something, uh, so that he could be born in human likeness. Hebrews says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he is... Uh, he empties himself. He takes on the form of a servant. Uh, of a servant, he's born in human likeness, and then he goes before us. He takes on all of our sin—past, present, future sin—and he buries it under a lake of fire. And he tastes death. The author of Hebrews says that he tastes death for all of us. He was born amidst animals, born with little privacy. He was placed in the feeding trough of unclean animals, to an unwed mother and a tradesman. Yet, he was the presence of God. Colossians 2.9, written by Paul, for whom our great city with not-so-great plowed streets is named, uh, <laughs> Colossians 2.9 says, the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus bodily. None of this stuff about Jesus never claiming to be the Messiah or the Trinity not being in the Bible or something like that. The fullness of deity, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus bodily. Not in some sort of mystical parable, not in some poetic spiritual sense. No, in his body, the fullness of deity dwelled. And that's why his body had to be raised up after three days. And that's why our bodies matter as well. And we too, if we're in him, will be raised up in bodily form. That's the miracle of Christmas. That's why the Advent is a big deal. And Advent is just the Latin for to come to. So it's God coming to earth. It's God making himself man. And then uh, we've heard a lot maybe about the incarnation. Uh, who here has studied any Spanish or any Latin language, Latin-based language? Spanish, Portuguese, French, anything? All right, so in Spanish, at least, la carne is the flesh or the meat or something like that. And that word carne is where you get that incarnation, right? You get like, in, our, in, our, in English, it's just a bad word, like carnal sins or something like that. But that carn, that root, means flesh or meat. And so when it says the incarnation, what it's talking about is God becoming flesh. That's what that word actually means, is God you know, fleshifying himself into human form. That's what the incarnation means. So maybe if you didn't, did anyone not know that? Am I, am I on? Yeah, this is fun. We were talking about maybe planning in tech failures on purpose so that uh, you guys could be in good discussion with each other. Uh, I've been teaching a class uh, on world religions this semester, and so I, I'm more and more comfortable with just the 
the idea of teaching for a bit, but then throwing it to class discussion and having people talk at tables and stuff. And I thought, man, maybe we should do that more as a church. It would be, it would be fun. We just got a few minutes left. I'll, I'll finish this, and then um, we'll have time for coffee and donuts together to keep the conversation going. Um, all right, so I was talking about the uh, incarnation. So uh, I'll wrap with these next few minutes. All, all the pain and all the humiliation and all the sin of humankind this is what Jesus takes on as he goes before us and covers us. He, he jumps into the human condition, the depression, the desire for a real community, the desire for real meaning and not loneliness, for your life to mean something or to count, for somebody to care, for somebody to say, I see you, I know you, and you mean something to me. Jesus felt all of that. If you ever feel that, Jesus felt that. And God says, I know what you, I know what you need. I know what you feel. Let me prove it to you. And that's the advent. That Let me prove it to you that I know what it means to be fully human and to go before you. Let me empty myself of something. Let me take on the form of a servant and let me go before you. So you're, you're sad, let me go before you in that sadness. You're exhausted, let me go before you in that exhaustion. You're feeling tempted, I'll go 40 days without food in the desert and then I will do battle with the devil and I will win. You're encumbered with the brokenness of the world around you, well, I will be broken to redeem the world around you. How, you ask? I'll be born like you. I will learn to walk like you and I'll fall and scuff my knees as a toddler. <laughs> the knee, think of that. The knees of God were scuffed on the pebbles of the earth. Somewhere over in Palestine, there are pebbles upon which Jesus cut himself as a kid. We'll never know where they are. But they're there somewhere, right? They're there somewhere. There's not a single person in here didn't once fall over and scuff their knee, right? Jesus did too. And somewhere in Palestine, those rocks are there bearing witness to the incarnation. He learned to talk like any man. He enjoyed successes, but was also humbled here. He was honored, and he was brutally humiliated here. He worked. He toiled. Sometimes he probably really enjoyed what he did, and other times he had to work under uh, toiling conditions. He got sick. He would have vomited like we do every once in a while. He scuffed his knees. He was tempted like us in every way. Hebrews says, again, I, I love the book of, if you haven't figured this out yet, I love the book of Hebrews. We spend so much time in the Gospels and then all of Paul, and we're like, ah, oh, and then the rest is like, it's okay. The book of Hebrews is amazing. Please spend some time there. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. But he differed from us here. So he's talking about, you know, we had these high priests in the Old Testament who could see the, could be in the presence of God once a year. But they too were sinners. But he goes on, he says, now we have a high priest who is tempted in every way like we are. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses and that he, though being tempted like us in every way, was without sin. Hebrews, I think it's 4, 16. I just have, it's verse 16. I think it's 4 or 5. It says, let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what the Advent is all about. Before, you couldn't even look at the face of God without getting just completely you know, exploded or, or just, uh, what's the word? When something just burns in an instant, it's just dust all of a sudden. What is it? 
Spontaneous combustion, right? Like that was what happened to people who looked upon the face of God. But now, because we have this priest who's gone before us and died for us, it says, now listen to this New Testament vibe and how different it is. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It's not like hide your face, put a veil on, don't don't do it except for one person once a year. It's like, no, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the difference between what we have in Christ and what we had before. We have all erred, we have all sinned, and we have all followed our ancestors in the fall. But he did not. And again, Paul, who our city is named after, he says, Consequently, just as one trespass, just as one sin resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, the cross, resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. God became man and scuffed his knees just like you did. He was tempted just like you were, but he did not sin. He was victorious where we are not. And that's Advent, the presence of God reestablished, the curse of sin and death Reverse The struggle of Babel and the struggle of all the temples, uh, you know, destroyed and recreated and destroyed and recreated, the conquests, the defeats, the slavery, the exodus, it's all made right. It's, you could say, finished. It's now God is in the flesh. God is face to face and the veil has been removed. The curtain before the Holy of Holies has been rent in two and the veil is gone. We don't need a veil to approach God lest we die. Instead, we have God staring right back at us as Jesus Christ in the flesh. Instead of hiding our faces, he comes to us face to face. Instead of looking at our marred and partial image that we scarred in Genesis 1, instead of looking at that marred image, it says he transforms us into his image. Paul says, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with, he's he's riffing on this, he says, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Paul is talking about this. He knows that the word of God had to be revealed through a veil. And he said, the veil is gone. The veil is gone. Jesus removed the veil. He tore it in two. And now we are being transformed. We are gazing upon Jesus, and we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. And it doesn't come from our work. It says it comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He also says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, that partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, And love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul keeps coming back to this idea of a veil, that we don't see dimly through a mirror, we don't see through a veil, we don't have to enter timidly, we can approach with boldness 
and grace. Because God has become man, the veil is lifted, and he is now present with us face to face. And that's what Advent means. Let me close us in prayer, and I invite you guys to be with us uh, downstairs for donuts and coffee. Uh, Father, we thank you for Advent, Lord. We thank you for, um, for reaching us face to face, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for removing the veil, for tearing it in two so that we could approach the Holy of Holies and look at you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.